This is HRT, a podcast featuring interviews with HR leaders, researchers, students, and influencers. HRT takes trending topics and research in human resources, steeps them for 30 minutes or less, and leaves you with fresh brewed ideas on how to drive high-performing, inclusive organizations and create meaningful work experiences. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD, the graduate programs in human resource development at Villanova University. I'm here with Ariane Olier Melitier. I get that wrong every time, but Ariane, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. So my name is Ariane Olier-Malater. I think you, you did a great job, you know, <laughs> pronouncing it anyways. It's not very easy if you're not a francophone. Uh, I'm a management professor at the School of Management of the University of Quebec in Montreal. And I'm interested in um, how we deal with technology and what that does, what, what that does to us in our work and in our life. Great. Well, let's start with what does well-being mean to you personally? Well, it, it means it may mean a lot of things. Um, one aspect uh, which I think is really crucial, especially since the pandemic, is mental health and work-life balance. So that's one dimension of well-being. Another one is the meaning of work and, and the sense of belongingness. So, uh, you know, there's the task and the people aspects that are really important to keep people motivated and well at work. And I think these dimensions include elements like the work climate, uh, the recognition, equity in the workplace, and all of that has been um, challenged and shifted uh, during the pandemic and in the, uh, you know, phasing back to work uh, stage that, that we are at presently. Yeah, so I've heard this um, really come to the head, um, you know, the forefront lately that well-being isn't just about your physical health, whether or not you're sick or well. It has all these other aspects of mental health, of work-life balance, of the social aspect of, of being well. So when we talk about well-being in the context of a workforce or organization, what does that mean? I tend to view people holistically. I mean, I think most people view themselves holistically as whole persons <laughs> rather than just workers on the one hand and the rest of life. On the other hand, I don't think there's a real isolation between the work domain and, and other life domains. And you see that because often uh, when someone burns out, uh, it's rarely only work related. <laughs> Most of the time it's, it's an emotional burnout and, and it taps into different spheres of life. Uh, and I think this is important to, to remind people of, of the fact that we shouldn't really say human resources. I, I, I always tell my students, you know, we don't manage human resources. We manage people. <laughs> we manage all persons. It should be people management or persons management. But I think we still suffer from that myth of separate spheres that, that Rosabeth Cantor had, had denounced in 1977, but it's still the case that we sometimes think that we have to 
act professionally and, and leave our personal identities at the door, which I think nobody can do, honestly. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there were some upsides to the pandemic, which really shined a light on that myth that we operate in separate spheres. Home is home, work is work, and they're absolutely separated from one another. And then all of a sudden they weren't and they couldn't be. And like you said, the work family realm, our heroes in that realm, the top researchers have been saying that for a long, long time, that it's all integrated and we need to operate in a way that it helps us. What role does well-being play in people's work? When they're well, how does that impact their work? The ideal scenario is when you are well, you have, you know, you have your energy, you are what, what scholars call the reservoir of resources <laughs> is full and operational. So you can draw upon these resources to be engaged and to focus and to be creative, to be supportive of your co-workers. Uh, so someone who is well at work is a resource for themselves and for other people. Uh, on the contrary, if, if you are drained, stretched, and, and you have too many demands, then it's hard to fulfill your, your job. And it's hard, even harder to be available for others. It's yeah. the classic, you know, work-life enrichment argument. You know, I would generalize. It's not just if you're well in your family or personal life, but if you are holistically well, you're going to feel better and, and be a, a nicer colleague and a more uh, performing employee at work. But there's still this attitude of um, tension between putting all at work or well-being, right? That if you focus on well-being and integration and doing well in all spheres, it takes away from doing well at work, right? You hear that counter argument. Um, what would you say about that? I'll go back to common sense. I saw a headline a couple of days back, uh, a CEO in a, in a Utah company uh, is mandating that everyone who lives in a radius of 50 miles has to return to work full time. And th there was no notice of that. You know, it was, I think, a one week notice or something like that. And he was praising people's sacrifices. In particular, he was praising one worker who sold the family dog to be able to return to work. And <laughs> you can see how this is wrong at so many levels. <laughs> so I'm back to common sense, because if you want your employees to feel well, if, if you want to understand well-being and what role well-being plays at work, I think it's very easy to understand that a, a family, a, a parent who just sold a family dog <laughs> is probably facing the resentment of the kids and, 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 and the partner. And can you imagine what's happening at home and, and the price of that sacrifice? And how can you just for one second think that this person is going to be well at work? Right. And bring their full attention and energy and engagement with that chip on their shoulder. Right, so it may be just one anecdote, one sad anecdote, I must say. You know, if you want people to perform at work, it shouldn't be a fight and a competition between what they are, who they are, and what they give uh, in terms of time and effort 
at home and how they commit at work. It can and it should be a win-win. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, it's it's funny that you bring up the example of um, having to rehome the family pet to go back to work because at my organization, we just got our own dog. So like a mascot and a well-being um, dog that students and faculty can really engage with to help their well-being. Mm -hmm. So we know well that, and that's supported by research that um, engagement with dogs and cats and other animals can enhance our well-being. So one area of research that you really dig into is work technology and work-life integration and, and how the two meet. Can you tell us a little bit about some findings that you think are interesting and that can help organizations make decisions about implementation of technology and use of technology at work? There's been a ton of, of recent research on how technology continues to blur the boundaries between work and life. You know, it existed already before the pandemic, of course, uh, but it has really accelerated. Um, so there's, there's a bright side of, of technology and there's a dark side. And I think what is really, really important, and that's what most of my research uh, currently focuses on, is how people can regulate their technology so that they can make the technology work for themselves to align the technology with their own goals and values in life rather than be enslaved to technology. You know, sometimes we discuss the electronic leash. <laughs> we're back to dogs instead. This time it's us. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, we're tethered to the technology. So instead of, of being a passive recipient and sometimes victim of technology, how can you take control over the technology? How do you regulate it? I call that digital regulation. And this can address three main challenges that my team and I, we, we have identified. So, so one is constant connectivity. The second is self-presentation online and in virtual spaces. And the third one is privacy. So for each of these challenges, I think people can both individually and collectively uh, take actions to regain control over the technology rather than just uh, suffer the consequences of the dark sides. Let's take each one actually. So constant connectivity. It sounds more like a darker side of technology issue than a bright side. Um, so tell us what that is and, and how organizations should approach the sweet spot of making it appropriate. It has a dark side. That's that's the first thing you think about. You know, you're constantly tethered to your emails, to your Teams notifications, to your iPhone, to your tablet. So you can always work 24 seven. So you think of the lack of detachment from work, of the guilt that uh, you feel at every instant when you're not checking your messages or notifications, because if you think of it, you could be working all the time, so why not? So if you're not working, then you start feeling guilty. So that's the dark side, because if you go that route, then you deplete your resources we need uh, daily breaks, like having an evening and a decent night of sleep. We need weekly breaks. We need holidays. And all of that has proven to make people more energetic, more creative, more available to others. But if you think of it 
constant connectivity can be a bonus as well. It's it's not all dark because constant connectivity it it what gives us flexibility in the way we organize work and life. It's the very basis upon which we can work flexibly and we can work remotely. <laughs> so there would be no telework and no hybrid work and no flexibility at all if we had to come to the office to, to you know, be able to tap into uh, the IT systems and be connected. So there's a bright side because constant connectivity gives you flexibility. It gives you connectedness with your coworkers and also with your friends, if you work in a different country <laughs> from if you know if you're an expatriate, an immigrant, uh, or just if you moved around, it gives you connectedness with the persons who don't leave, um, who are not co-located with you. So it, I wouldn't say it's it's good or bad. Um, it definitely has an upside as well. It makes your work easier, it makes your life easier, but you have to tame it, you have to regulate it. You have to discipline yourself and have rules about when and where you are going to connect and for what purpose and build boundaries, rebuild the boundaries that have been eroding because otherwise you end up just being overwhelmed by all the possibility of always responding to this and that in all domains of life. And you don't want to be overwhelmed. That doesn't feel good. No, it does not. What are some specific ways that um, organizations, I'm thinking of managers especially, who can help their employees build those boundaries? Well, there are many ways, uh, but I think also it's a matter of, of organizational culture and expectations. Mm -hmm. And it may also be a matter of public policy thinking, for instance, of the right to disconnect. <laughs> so let's start with the tactics. There are many things that you can do on your smartphone or your tablet or your computer to enable or disable notifications. It sounds silly, but just having your work emails app on your phone opens the door to being connected and checking if you received that answer to the email you sent while you are, you know, waiting at the red light. <laughs> and then you're ruminating about it or not having received the answer uh, for the next uh, half hour that you're driving. Um, so it's a choice that you make. Are you going to have that app on your phone? Is it going to be on the first page of your phone when you always see it? Or is it going to be maybe on the third phone? So you have to scroll and, it, you know, it slows you down a little, it slows, it slows your impulse to be checking. Our brain is wired to be attentive to these big red dots that figure the notifications. So one simple way is just to turn them off. You can still check your emails, uh, but you don't have to be stressed about it and you don't have to do it in an addictive way. Another thing is, for instance, uh, refrain to send um, important emails where you have to-do lists for others at the end of the day or the end of the week, because it feels good, right? You, you have done something, you want to sketch out a work plan for your team, and you set it out Friday, 6 p.m., and you're like, wow, I can go on the weekend. <laughs> But what happens to uh, to the others who, who who actually read that on Friday 6 p.m. and then they ruminate about it during the weekend or, or they work on it during the weekend? 
Um, so you have to be aware of what your own actions do to others and the signals and the messages that they convey about expectations. Yeah, I, I love the send later because I get it off my plate, but they get it on Monday morning instead of Friday night. So I've been a big fan of that. Yes, yes. And and for the managers who, who are listening, um, it's very important to think about the messages you send about availability expectations. You have data on, on how people reacted, adjusted to work from home during the first year of the pandemic. And you could think that, you know, when you work flexibly from home, you would be less stressed out regarding availability expectations. You would be less stressed about putting it FaceTime because when you work in the office, we all know FaceTime is used by some managers as a proxy for a commitment, which is wrong. <laughs> we know that as well. You know, you can be present in the office, but uh, working to uh, organize your next vacation or on Facebook or something else, right? So it's not because you're present at the office that you're actually working in a committed and, and performing way. But, you know, we're just human beings and managers are very busy as well. So many of them take uh, FaceTime as a proxy. So we were hoping that working from home would liberate employees from that pressure. And, and we were hoping that maybe managers would assess the performance based on output rather than virtual FaceTime. But unfortunately, what happens in, in many workplaces is that remote workers actually double down on showing their availability by answering very, very quickly to phone calls, to instant messages, to messages on Teams, to emails, um, by making sure that their status on the different platforms that they use for work is active, <laughs> on making sure that they are available during the weekends. So instead of being liberated, we saw many people adjust to work from home by doubling down on constant connectivity and, and showing commitment and showing availability, which of course has translated into emotional exhaustion. <laughs> so if you're a manager, you're listening, you have to, to think carefully about what is the culture and the expectations that you're conveying? Because in the long run, uh, someone cannot be always available and, and, and show you that they are always at their desk, be there in a sustainable way and not uh, go towards emotional exhaustion. It's just, it's, I'm back to common sense again. You want people to stay there for the long run. Right, so that's that self-presentation component where they, they are showing in all these different ways that they're, I'm available, I'm here, I'm working. And, and on the flip side, we've seen during the move to online work, a lot of monitoring by organizations also, so it's not just employees showing this presentation, it's also being asked and being monitored by some employers with, is your mouse moving? Um, can you document every minute that you work today? Because I didn't see you doing it, which I find really disturbing and counterproductive in terms of well-being and autonomy and trust. <laughs> Yes, actually, that, that's one of my other projects is precisely employee monitoring at work. Mm -hmm. And um, so we started off by documenting the prevalence of 
these new softwares that people tend to call bossware, you know, the softwares that you hope can do the work of the boss. So they are called bossware. Uh, and some of them has have really interesting names. You know, one of them is a active track. Well, you know, it tells you what it does, but you also have I spy, you have kick idler. <laughs> you really have interesting names that, that actually don't convey a message of trust. And uh, the sales of these softwares in North America have quadrupled since March 2020. So again, you know, some of us telework scholars at the start of the pandemic, we were hoping that managers having understood that people are maintaining productivity at work because the economy didn't crumble that much, you know, their services were maintained. So people kept working and working hard despite having children at home and despite everything else. So we were hoping that managers would have underst understood that and then that there would be some trust towards remote workers. You know, it could be a possibility that the pandemic would be a terrific opportunity to rethink the relationship between employers and employees and, and where work needs to happen and what that means. But for some workplaces, uh, what we saw instead <laughs> is they buy the busware and, and they monitor employees. And some of that busware actually advertises that you don't even have to inform the employees. It's secret. They don't even know it, which is illegal, of course. <laughs> right, that brings us to the privacy issue, the third component. That must be part of it, right? Is if we can monitor you without you knowing. What else is part yes. of that privacy component? Yes, well, well, that is actually very, very disturbing because what happened during the pandemic is that we all got on Zoom. And so before people learn to blur their background or <laughs> to manage the settings, we all gained a window into people's life. And that is problematic because there's actually, there's a really excellent paper that just came out that proved that the uh, information that your background conveys really influences how people perceive you. Because in your background, you can have multiple information about, for instance, are you a parent? If you have children's drawings, uh, if you have, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I see your background now. Your background can convey information about your religious uh, beliefs. It can convey information about what you are reading. I see your books in the background, Heather. If I, if I want to zoom in, maybe I'll gain some interesting information about uh, your worldviews or maybe even your political affiliation <laughs> or your perspective on this and that. And if I don't share the same perspective as you, this is going to have consequences on, on how willing I am I'm, I, I'm going to be to work with you or if I am your manager on the next uh, performance ratings. You see how self, the self-presentation challenge and the privacy challenge are interrelated. I hadn't thought of that. That's really tapping into some of the issues around unconscious bias. Part of what I call digital regulation is to... Uh, be very aware that sometimes it makes sense to have boundaries, uh, not only in terms of the time when you work and the space where you work, but also what you disclose to others. 
you have to be very aware. And, and that goes back to, you know, my old work on social media and how you present yourself on, on social media where your different spheres collide. Uh, when you are with your friends, well, you know, there's a certain degree of, of homophily. You chose your friends, your friends choose you. So it's probably okay if you discuss religion or beliefs or political affiliations or worldviews. But in a workplace, People come from diverse origins. They may not share your beliefs. And if they don't, this can really backlash. Yeah, that's really interesting. So all of these aspects contribute to the emotional exhaustion and the burnout that is is kind of sky high numbers at this point. And the mental health issues coming out of this big change in work from home and not, I, I think not getting it quite right out the gate um, in terms of managers not really knowing how to really manage employees from a distance, engaging these softwares, bossware, um, that really, I think, inhibit trust in some ways, because if you think that I'm working and you know that I'm working, you trust me to get my work done, then you don't need the software. So it sort of, it sends a message, whether they're using it or not, to really monitor people. You mentioned something about managers really leaning into an outcome orientation instead of a when and where you're working orientation. I want to really just emphasize that point. I think one of the challenges, one of the reasons why it's so hard for managers to really base their performance ratings and their feedback and mentoring efforts based on output is that this is much harder than basing it on the number of hours work worked, you know, the FaceTime uh, during which you see the person, or to use quantitative indicators uh, given up to you by this buzzware, such as, you know, the mouse stopped moving for two hours at that point. Well, maybe the person was reading something, or maybe the, the, the person was recording a podcast like, like I'm doing now and my mouse is not moving. <laughs> but it's a lot easier for, for anyone really to just look at a bunch of quantitative indicators or, or to see how long someone is seated at their desk then you have to assess an output. You have to have really clearly framed what the objective of the work was and what the output uh, was expected and, and in which forms and when. So there's a lot more work going into what are my precise expectations of, of this assignment that I'm giving you. And how are we going to, to work together if, if you encounter a challenge? How can you help you do that uh, so that you really have the resources to be able to do that? And then how do I assess it? It needs a lot more work. Uh, I think this is called management. <laughs> so it's work that managers should do, but it's, it's a lot more effort. And so you can understand the temptation to just use busware or, you know, quantitative HR, all these buzzwords, uh, all these fads around the, the numbers that are supposedly more objective than a human assessment of your work, which I think, you know, doesn't make sense. 
because the reason why we have managers is that we expect human assessments <laughs> of all those pe people capabilities and work outputs. But the temptation is here to just quantify and, and rely on the so-called objective indicators. That may be completely wrong. Since you do have expertise in virtual work and telework long before the pandemic changed attitudes around it and our ability to do it, what are some sort of telework guidelines that you think are really important for organizations? Organizations seem to be, like you said, sort of making decisions in a, almost a knee-jerk fashion where they're like, everybody has to come back to the office rather than um, making decisions based on the science of telework or real business needs. So what are some recommendations you have around telework? Before the pandemic, there were, I think, very clear recommendations about, for instance, the frequency of telework. Most scholars would tell that on average, two or three days of telework was a good balance because this gives you the flexibility and the focus that you want when you work from home you, without interruptions or with less interruptions. At the same time, this, this gives you the opportunity to collaborate in a pleasant work climate with your colleagues. So two, three days a week seemed to be a, a recommendation that was rather consensual. There were also recommendations regarding new employees who need to learn the skills or who need to learn the culture to socialize. Um, the recommendation was, of course, that these employees need to spend a little more time um, on site at the beginning, or they need stronger virtual mentoring and onboarding practices and programs. There are recommendations also regarding the nature of what you have to do. If you have to have a difficult conversation with someone on a sensitive topic or a disciplinary meeting, for instance, uh, then it's a lot better to meet face-to-face -face because it's, it's a lot richer. You know, that's the basic of communication sciences. You get the body language. Uh, you get all the physical cues that you don't have in a virtual conversation. So I think most of these recommendations still hold. They have become complexified uh, for two reasons. One, one is people have become used to work at home on a full-time basis. Well, they were forced to. <laughs> and they, they made a lot of sacrifices to continue to be productive despite everything else that was happening, despite the general stress, despite the other responsibilities they had at home. So I think many people think that now it's they are entitled as a reward for all these sacrifices and this brutal shift to force telework, now they are entitled to continue teleworking because they have proven that they kept up the productivity. So it's, it's hard to just go with the two, three days a week because for many people, this doesn't make sense anymore because they have proven that actually full-time or four days a week makes sense for them or because they have moved out. And then it will be a breach of psychological contract to ask them to move again and go back to the city. The other reason is that it's now massive. So whereas we used to have just one or two remote workers in a team, now we have most people. So you have to think collectively. So when you issue policies, if you do, <laughs> about return to work, you have to think at the team level. 
because there's nothing more depressing for someone to be commuting all the way to the office to just find themselves alone <laughs> in, on, on the floor uh, in the office and then spend the day on Zoom meetings with people who are not there because maybe the co-workers are in India or they are in Europe or they are somewhere else. And it makes no sense to commute and go back to the office. So you have to think at the team level and see the nature of the work and where the other people are located. And can they agree that, for instance, they all want to come to the office for two days a week, and these are going to be the days where they all uh, are present. But if there's only one person who wants to come to the office, well, let them come, but don't make the others, you know, have to think collectively as well. Are there ways for 100% virtual teams to get some of the benefits of collaborative time um, that they might be missing if they're completely virtual? Well, there's a lot of research on, on virtual teams and um, th this is not my area of expertise, you know, briefly uh, discuss it, but uh, there are ways to, um, to rebuild informal time where you can uh, share what's happening uh, at work or in your life with colleagues and have fun with your colleagues. I, I remember a case, for instance, but that was, I think, two, two decades old, where they used uh, virtual worlds like Second Life to play games virtually within teams. I remember this game was a platform and you had to balance that part of the team was uh, on one end of the platform, part of the team was on the other hand, and I had to coordinate the moves uh, else, you know, everyone falls out. <laughs> so you have to quickly coordinate. It's a work task, but also it's fun and game and it builds climate. So there are ways to do that. It needs to be planned because if you don't plan an informal time, then with the work pressure and the workload, it's never going to happen. And I personally find that informal time online doesn't always feel as informal as, a, you know, a conversation in the office where we just sort of work out a problem or discuss something and it's kind of work and personal all interjected. I personally lean on the research that says sometime in the office and sometime out of the office, but it's also so the kind of work that I do, that some of it needs the quiet time and some of it needs the collaborative time. And I know the research supports that. But like you said, there are a lot of variables now in terms of if employees were hired to be completely remote, whether their offices closed completely and the whole staff went completely remote, then I think they do have to lean into some of these virtual attempts at collaboration and and getting to, to know each other as a team and working together as a team and having fun as a team. Well, it can be done. I mean, we've had virtual teams on different continents for, for decades now. Another thing that can be interesting is have some face-to-face some -face meetings from time to time. Face-to-face -face if it's doable, um, but otherwise virtual uh, informal times. Coming back to the idea of well-being, what are you passionate about in the well-being and work-family integration space right now? Well, I'm really trying to advocate hard for digital regulation. I think it is crucially important for people, for managers, for HR officers and policymakers and, and unions, of course, uh, to learn 
to master these skills of how do you tame the technology? How do you make it work for you, for your objectives? So I think it's important to document what happens when you use technology in the wrong ways or in passive, uncontrolled ways and to propose actions on how you could do it differently. For instance, how you could regulate um, employee surveillance softwares if you were <laughs> a policymaker, how you could propose a right to disconnect policy with the team that I lead at, at UCAM, the um, International Network on Technology, Work and Family, we have co-authored a piece uh, in the Stanford Social Innovation Review on the right to disconnect. It's been co-authored by 14 members on, of the team on four different continents, including China, South Africa, Italy, France, Canada, the US, so this is one thing I'm excited about, and it has even been translated in Mandarin, and it's appeared in HBR Italia. So the key issue there is really the detachment from work, the downtime, the pursuing other life things, but really not feeling tethered and feeling completely detached sometimes for recovery. That's the key issue underlying this sort of, we need to get almost to a regulatory level on this issue because people are having a hard time detaching for themselves. Yes, I think if you if you expect individual employees to have the discipline and to be able to break free from all the cultural expectations that we are going to be available and we are going to be working all the time, which are huge in North America in particular, then it's it's just, you know, it's not going to happen. Because the, um, the work ethic and the, the work devotion schemas are so strong in North America that I don't think an isolated individual can manage that on their own. So we are aware that we can't have a right to disconnect in the form of a one-size-fits-all policy or a dictate to disconnect at, I don't know, 8 p.m. or, you know, or this or that day of the week. It cannot work that way, it needs to be flexible, but at least offer employees a floor of rights so that you mandate organizations to have that discussion and develop these policies in coordination with the unions, if you have a union. I think that is interesting. That's the way it's done in France. Of course, it's, it's very, the implementation is very slow. I'm not saying uh, that all French employees now feel they have the right to disconnect. That would be utopian. <laughs> but uh, I think it is important to help employees and managers have these discussions because they are crucially important. You might have the same answer here, a different one, but what do, what do you think is the next big thing when it comes to workplace well-being? What's on the horizon? Well, probably AI. <laughs> yes. AI, chat GPT, human bot interactions. I'm not being very original here, you know, everybody's discussing these topics, um, but I do think it's interesting. Um, Take ChatGPT, for instance, if it works, when it works, or if you're really gifted at finding the right prompts and then checking the output, it can make your work easier. So it can enhance your well-being. 
I've read the newspaper articles actually about how employees now use ChatGPT and don't tell their boss. <laughs> so they use ChatGPT to write emails or do, you know, tasks uh, that can be automated and they just don't tell the manager. And I thought, oh, that's interesting because now it's, you know, instead of managers using technology in a covered way, like, you know, some boss wear to spy on employees, it's employees using technologies in a covered way to uh, get their work done and, and lighten their workload. But of course, if if the use of ChatGPT at work um, leads to low quality outputs, or as we've seen in, in other cases, you can uh, um, accuse people of having committed crimes and then they have nothing to do with it. <laughs> ChatGPT can get it wrong, very wrong. This might be a problem, you know, how do you, check and how do you assess the work of employees that now that we have that the same problem that we have as professors by the way yes. how do you how do you regulate that technology so that you can use its assets and its potential benefits without being overwhelmed by the drawbacks of it well this has been an amazing discussion and um i think this these ideas around regulating technology for the better of our well-being and um, our mental health, really important. And the upside of using them to support us and make us better in our work and personal lives, also important. So finding that sweet spot where we're using technology and telework instead of these struggles between, you know, creating where it creates tension in our relationships and in our lives. I think it's really important messaging. Thank you for listening to this episode of HRC. As your thoughts from today's episode steep, share with us what you are brewing using the hashtag HRT. That's hashtag H-R-T-E-A. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD. To learn more about Villanova University's graduate programs in human resource development, visit our website at villanovahrd.com.